Good afternoon. Welcome to Broken Potholes. I am your host, Chuck Warren, and my co-host and compadre, Sam Stone, and of course, our executive producer, the irrepressible Kylie Kipper. Today, we are honored to have a great guest. Um, this is Dr. Anders Kaur. He has received his um, doctorate in government from Harvard University, and we'll talk about that a little bit, but he is the principal of Core Analytics, is the publisher of the Journal of Political Risk, and he's conducted extensive research in North America, Europe, and Asia, um, has a real influence and specialty in China, and he also writes for the Epic Times, and um, Dr. Core, thank you for coming on our show today. Thank you. It's a real pleasure. Two, let's start with two questions, just so our, our audience gets to know you a little bit. First of all, what was it like being right of center intellectual, going to Yale undergrad and Harvard for a graduate degree? And then two, tell us a little bit about core analytics. Well, I don't know if I, if I describe myself as right of center. I think I'm pretty center. Okay. Um, but I, I do think that uh, I do look at realist variables, and I take them very seriously, like, like uh, economics and military issues, and I think a lot of people, uh, a lot of academics and international relations these days do not take those as seriously as they probably should, which bites them in the you-know-what. Afghanistan, Afghanistan, a current example, right? Yeah, exactly. And tell us about Core Analytics. I started Core Analytics in 2013 after... Uh, several years of uh, working in military intelligence in Afghanistan and um, also in Hawaii, looking at Asia, um, just to have my own company and to uh, publish the Journal of Political Risk, which is an independent journal about um, focused on looking at uh, political risks to businesses internationally. Oh, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Well, Lily, you had an, you had a, an opinion piece out um, recently about Vice President Harris calling for action regarding China, but as of all things, she was very nonspecific about what the action should be. Could you tell us a little more about it and how you feel her her adventure in Southeast Asia has been so far? Well, I mean, I think that what her recent speech in Singapore shows is that she is not uh, pushing the envelope very hard on the China issue. Um, So if you compare her speech to Vice President Pence's speech, uh, his first speech about China was very, very tough. Um, It was seen as very hawkish, and um, he really took China to ask for many, many things. Um, And a lot has happened since then. I mean, that was about four years ago. And since then, both the Trump administrations and the Biden administrations have called out China and recognized a genocide against the Uyghurs. And, uh, you know, Kamala Harris's speech did not reflect uh, that that new data, all the new data we've had over the last four years about about how bad China has been. Um, She actually reverted to kind of the style of speech that you might expect from the Obama administration. Um, so it's a, it was a real disappointment for me to see uh, her not take China as seriously as she should. What After what's happened in Afghanistan the last two weeks, um, what um, our tense relationship with China is, and based on what your, your careers and your, your network of people, how is America viewed in the world right now as a national security power? Well, it's definitely taken a big hit. I mean, Afghanistan, pulling out of Afghanistan, um, you know, if, if we had pulled out of Afghanistan smoothly and the, and the Kabul government had been able to hold and the, and the Afghan military had been able to hold some of the provincial capitals and continue the fight against the Taliban, then we would have been a lot better off in terms of our soft power and our image abroad. But as it, as it, as it happens, it looks like we got surprised, which I think we did, at the quick fall of Afghan, Afghan provincial capitals and Kabul itself. And, you know, and then the images of people falling off of airplanes and clinging to that last hope of America as it took off from the Kabul airport, which is actually where I spent a year and a half. I was there for a year and a half at that very airport 
on the military side because that's where the operational headquarters uh, for the Afghan for the for the NATO operations in Afghanistan were. Um, but that uh, you know it we've taken a huge hit. I was on a on an Indian uh, TV show recently, and um, you know, the introduction to the show was just America has caused this problem. It's all. You know, the, the killings and the rapes that are happening in Kabul right now are all America's fault. And, you know, it was um, a very tough, it was a very tough session. Um, but so we're taking a big hit, and uh, but we're going to have to just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and uh, fight on. Doctor, how do we turn this around? Because I think if you look right now internationally at what the U.S. is doing and, and all the various failures of the last few years, and then you look at what China's doing with their Belt and Road Plan. They're looking very attractive as an umbrella power for a lot of con- developing countries out there, and we're not. Is that fair to say, and, and how do we turn that around? They're definitely trying to look that way, and I, I believe that um, one of the reasons why countries fall into Beijing's satellite orbit so easily is uh, that a lot of the leaders of the real poor countries, the small countries around the world, are getting bribed by the, you know, Chinese consulates or Chinese embassies or Chinese intelligence, however they do it, Chinese businesses. Uh, and there's some, there's some proof of that. There's been some convictions of uh, bribes that have happened uh, in terms of Chad and some other countries, uh, some, of, some of the U.N., some of the nonprofits that are related to uh, the UN uh, do this. Um, they even bribed the, the Secretary General, the President of the UN General Assembly, um, you know, a couple years ago. And then when he was going to trial uh, in New York, he got he, he got killed somehow. I mean, they say <laughs> it was a an accident in the gym that his. That, that he got strangled by a barbell in his home gym. But, I mean, how? what are the chances of that? Yeah, that happens every day, right? <laughs> it happens every day, Right absolutely. before you testify. <laughs> Mike, let me ask you a question here, a personal opinion. So you're an opinion, you, you do some contri- contributions to the Epic Times, which I imagine most of its audience would be opposed to um, soft diplomacy, meaning giving money or, or helping build economic, you know, economic um, benefits for countries and giving grants and things of that nature. Nation building. Nation building, stuff like that. that. Yeah. How important do you think that is that we participate in that? Or do you think that is overblown and it's not really useful for exerting American influence and power? Well, I think it's kind of, it kind of cuts both ways because when you get into this game of, of, spending a lot of money to try to outspend China, and then China tries to outspend you. But the thing is, is that if China manages to to bribe the officials, right, then it doesn't matter how much you spend. If China spends a million bucks on the official who's making the decisions, and you don't spend a million bucks counter-bribing them, then you're in trouble. And if you look, if you look at, even if we look back at Afghanistan, in terms of the Karzai government, the reporting is in the New York Times, where this guy was taking cash from both the CIA and the Iranians, and uh, you know, and then the current president of of Afghanistan took off with over a hundred million dollars in his in cash when he took off to UAE. So, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff that goes on in international politics that we just don't we just don't see, we don't read about in the newspaper. Um, but I believe it has a huge effect on the decisions that the presidents and the prime ministers are taking around the world. And I think it's it's a very difficult game. And, um, you know, we've tried in the past to, to develop countries. I, I think in general it's good to have some kind of an aid program, an international aid program. Um, but that's not all of it. Uh, there's much more going on. And, and we can't just use... We can't just use carrots. We got to use sticks too. We got to go after the bad guys. Do we do carrots or sticks well at all, right now? <laughs> well, uh, from the from the from Afghanistan, it doesn't seem so, you know. But um, part of the problem in Afghanistan was we 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 knew that the Taliban were supported by Pakistan, 
Right. We knew that Pakistan was supported by China, but we never took the fight to Pakistan, and we definitely didn't take the fight to China. And so as long as you don't go for the root causes of these things, uh, it's going to pop up elsewhere, and you're just going to play whack-a-mole forever. Doctor, how do you counter a country? Because over and over and over we see China doesn't play by the same rules that the, the West or the international community has laid out. How does the United States or other countries compete with that? Because you talked about the bribes, uh, some of the other things they're doing, uh, like, for instance, building you know, entire government complexes that are in, loaded with listening devices and bugs. Uh, they play every angle and have a, no apparent regard for international mores. How do you counter a country like that? I think if you look back at the history of the Cold War with the Soviet Union, uh, you know, you'll see that we were playing some angles, too, um, whether it's, you know, all of, all of the above, basically. And, um, and I think, you know, some of this has to be situational. You have to, you know, you've got to try to win on ten fronts at once, and that's, that's what we did during the Cold War, and I think that's increasingly what we're going to have to do against China because... As China gets more powerful than us, and actually by, you know, by GDP, uh, we still have a high, bigger GDP than China. But if you look at GDP purchasing power parity, which is an IMF measure of GDP that accounts for things like how much does your dollar buy, how much bread does it buy, how much steel does it buy, how many electronics does it buy, actually China passed us up in 2017. So China, by that measure, is more powerful than the United States by GDP, and they can use that GDP to build uh, ships, naval gear, uh, air force, faster than we are. Now, we, we believe and we hope that we have better technology than them, but in some places, like supercomputing, AI, in some instances, they have seemed to exceed our technological capabilities. So we're, we're in a very... A close race at this point, and some are arguing that China's running faster. Well, when we come back here in just a moment, I want to talk about that a little bit more. I thank you very much, Dr. Anders Kaur, fantastic guest so far. Broken Potholes will be coming right back in just a moment. The political field is all about reputation, so don't let someone squash yours online. Secure your name and political future with a yourname.vote web address from GoDaddy.com. Your political career depends on it. Welcome back to Broken Potholes, airing Saturday, 3 p.m. on 960 The Patriot in Phoenix. You can catch us on Spotify, Substack, Apple Podcasts, just about anywhere you can find a podcast on the internet, Broken Potholes will be there. Our guest today, Dr. Anders Kaur, uh, fantastic background, very relevant to the moment. He is the principal at Core Analytics and publisher of the Journal of Political Risk, has a great deal of experience in Afghanistan, has spent, uh, Dr. Kaur, did you say a year and a half or two years there at the airport? 1.5. 1.5. Plenty, plenty of time. What was your surprise about? What was your surprise about that experience after 1.5 years? Well, I mean, I think that the 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 speed of the of the Kabul fall was surprising to everybody, um, but I I believe that we should have seen it because. The Kabul government uh, that we supported for 20 years, that we built up for 20 years, trying to make a democracy in Afghanistan, trying to have rule of law, trying to build up a, a military that could defend the city, defend the country uh, from the terrorists, um, you know, they, these guys were corrupt. So what happened was a lot of these guys were taking some money from the, the drug dealers and the Taliban, which are kind of the same because the Taliban controlled the opium fields, mostly in the south, Helmand and Kandahar. Uh, so a lot of that money that, you know, Afghanistan is the biggest opium producer in the world. So they export natural opium everywhere. 
through Australia, through, through China, through the, through the U.S., Canada, uh, Malaysia, all of these, that, that opium goes, goes everywhere. And uh, all that, you know, to get that opium out of Afghanistan, the, the growers have to pay the Taliban. Otherwise, the Taliban won't let it go through. Now, in the same way, we were paying Pakistan to get our military gear into the country through, uh, through Pakistan, because most of it was trucked in. Every, every, pretty much every ounce of oil, every gallon of oil or gas that we used in Afghanistan, we, were ha- we had to truck it through Pakistan. Oh my gosh. So Pakistan was getting a lot of money in terms of aid uh, for months. So in a way, Pakistan was incent- we were incentivizing Pakistan to keep the war going. Now that's exactly what Pakistan did because they were their intelligence and military agencies were supporting the Taliban with military gear and and money and uh, safe haven so the Taliban could attack in Afghanistan and run back for some Western recuperation in Pakistan. But doctor, but we it, never we never took the fight to Pakistan. No, yeah? we haven't, doctor. One one you know you talked about the opium issue. Talking to our police here in Phoenix, we. Uh, Prior to 9-11 and our invasion of Afghanistan, a day's worth of heroin here cost about $120. It now costs 15 This is a major driver of the homelessness epidemic and things that are going on here. So, you, I mean, it, this has consequences all over the world. And I know, Chuck, you had another question also. Well, I, I was following up more with Pakistan. Uh, so how big of a financial hit does Pakistan take now economically because we're leaving Afghanistan that are not transporting a bunch of oil and other things we need through Afghanistan? I mean, is there a big financial hit? Question. I mean, I'm sure that's pretty it's sizable. Billions. I mean, it's yeah, it's billions of dollars. And actually, Trump was the one who cut uh, support to uh, Pakistan. He knew what was going on and he stopped it. Um, and that's just you know, in Afghanistan too is now they're taking a huge hit because. There was a war economy. I mean, it, it, the, the GDP of Afghanistan shot up because of the war. We were spending so much money in Afghanistan that that made the GDP go up. And as soon as we drew down our forces starting in 2011, GDP dropped. People got poorer. And now when we leave, I mean, they don't, they don't, a lot of those guys can't eat after, um, you know, in a couple of months. That's what the U.N. is saying. So we've got a real, a real humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan showing up here in the next quarter or two. Let me, I want to go back to the original question. You spent 1.5 years in Afghanistan inside the airport. What surprised you about your experience there, personally? What surprised you? I mean, we all go in with theories when we go into a new experience, um, a hunch. But then we actually live the experience. What changed from your original hunch or theory to what you really experienced there? Well, one of the things that bothered me uh, when I worked there was the way in which intelligence, because I, I worked in basically doing social, social and cultural intelligence, but I was doing some broad day, broad military intelligence there, like counting the number of, of Taliban in the whole country, figuring out a method to do that, a math, mathematical method to do. But the, um, the, you know, one of the things that bothered me was that a lot of the intelligence was geared to making the generals look good because the general would go to Afghanistan and then the, the general would want things to get better because of what he did and then he could put that on his report card and get a get a uh, get a promotion and, so, a, course, and a nice general, piece in the New Yorker yeah. yeah yeah a real nice piece so the general would put pressure you know I think I believe um, you know on people down below him would put pressure on people below and below and it goes and it cascades all the way down so that people are sending up good news stories up the chain rather than the reality on the ground and i think this is you know this this is how big intelligence failures happen and actually that's what we had in afghanistan when we didn't foresee the rapid fall of the afghan military that we produced because no one wanted to admit that the Afghan military was a house of cards waiting to fall as soon as we left. As soon as, and we were going to keep paying these guys after we left billions of dollars, but you know, when we left, there was no there was no air support, there was nothing, and the Taliban I think used their guys on the inside, and probably a lot of those guys were bribed, 
or threatened because if you're a general, if you're a general in the Afghan army, Taliban just needs to knock on your cousin's door and say, hey, you know, we know that your uh, your uncle is General so and so. We're going to kill you and all your family if he doesn't do what we say. So there was a there was a lot of uh, basic problems in how we structured uh, the military and the government in Afghanistan, such that it was it was easy for the Taliban to blow over when when we left. We have about ninety seconds here, Doctor, to our next break. Um, basically, how we've had this incompetent withdrawal. Are we going to have any intelligence on the ground in Afghanistan, or is it just become black now, and we're just hoping for the best? And Satellites and drones. I mean, do we have any human intelligence on the ground anymore? Everybody's like, I can't count on America. I'm not going to risk my family. I'm not going to risk my tribe. Uh, what, what, what can we expect from this now? I'm pretty sure we'll have some. I'm pretty sure we'll have some human intel on the ground. But the question will be, is anyone listening up up top? Apparently is not. Is that intelligence getting filtered and refiltered and and biased as it, as it climbs the chain? In a, as we're talking about all this, and we talked about last week with one of our guests, that the minute the U.S. pulled their supply line out of Afghanistan, there was really no hope for the Afghan army. We spent 20-plus 20, 20 years there at this point. We never built an economy. It, that's kind of stunning to me that there, I mean, there really is no infrastructure to support Afghanistan as a country going forward, is there? We try to build roads. We try to put in water uh, water wells. We put in a, you know, there was a dam that we were protecting. Um, and, you know, we did try to do some of that. But um, didn't but get far enough. Easy. Yeah. Well, Broken Potholes coming back in just a moment. Dr. Anders Kaur, thank you so much for being on the program today. We'll be back. The 2020 political field was intense, so don't get left behind in 2021. If you're running for political office, the first thing on your to-do list needs to be securing your name on the web with a yourname.vote domain from GoDaddy. Get yours now. Welcome back to Broken Potholes. On the line with us today, Dr. Anders Core, principal at Core Analytics and publisher of the Journal of Political Risk. Doctor, right before we went to break, we've been talking about Afghanistan. I want to talk a little bit more about China and what you see coming in the next few years. I think if you look at the news, China has clearly made a commitment to expanding their footprint, not only throughout Asia, but throughout the world into South America, all these other places. You certainly know a lot more about China and their policy, their their hopes than we do here. Tell us a little bit about where you see them trying to go. What are they trying to accomplish? They've been expanding since they were, you know, the Chinese Communist Party was founded in 1921. And, uh, since that time, they first grabbed some territory in about 1930, 1933, about that, in a, a little province in the south. Uh, and they then the, the nationalists beat them, the nationalist Chinese, who were also a dictatorship but on the capitalist side, uh, beat them, and they ran off to the Yunnan Hills. Then they, they sort of waited out World War II when the Japanese invaded, although they wouldn't. They, they deny that, but they, they waited out World War II while the nationalists fought the Japanese, and then they came in at the very end, beat the na- beat the nationalists, um, uh, and took over the country in 1949. Uh, then they, you know, they after that they they it's a communist, the Chinese Communist Party is trying to beat capitalism. They're trying to beat America. They're trying to beat Britain. They they don't like imperialists. Who they European imperialists. But what they're doing is they're essentially replacing other imperialists with their own imperialists. So, for example, in 1950, they grabbed Tibet militarily, and there was an ancient, hundreds of years old government, Tibetan government, um, and they ran off with about 100,000 people to India uh, when the Chinese came in and took over. And around the same time, the Chinese uh, Communist Party took over 
uh, Xinjiang, um, which is in the far west, and it's Muslim, and they're basically trying to eradicate the the Muslim and Tibetan Buddhist religions in those places. They started way back then and replace it with communism. And communism has is against religion. They don't they they don't like religion. They want to re- get rid of it and they want to replace it with their own ideology. And uh, that's technically a genocide, according to U.S. law and according to the U.N. Genocide Convention. It's against it's against the it's against international law and it's against U.S. law to try to eradicate a religion. Um, so, you know, this is this is what's going on, and they're not only doing that; they're also they broke a treaty with Britain to grab Hong Kong recently, and they're threatening war against Taiwan now. And they're building up their military forces, whether it's amphibious um, boats and 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 tanks and uh, missiles to destroy the Taiwanese military, which are that's where the nationalists ran after 1949. Well, and um, U.S. as I understand it, recently held some internal war games uh, based on a scenario of them trying to take Taiwan, and in that scenario, the the Chinese wiped out the U.S. Navy in a matter of hours. So this is becoming increasingly possible for them. Yeah, exactly. The more they build, uh, the better and the more technology they steal from the U.S., uh, the better able they are going to be to grab Taiwan. These aren't the Soviets, right? I mean, the Soviets kept stealing our technology but couldn't actually build it. The Chinese build it and, in many cases, build it better. Yeah, they're building, the Chinese are building very well. And uh, in some cases, according to some sources, some of their anti-ship missiles, for example, go farther than our anti-ship missiles. So it's possible you could get, if you had two ships, U.S. and Chinese, just alone in the sea, it's possible the Chinese could, could sink our ship before we sink their ship. You know, I, I don't know all the details, but there's, there's you know, there, people who are in the military are getting increasingly worried about uh, what's going on in China in terms of their military capabilities. But they also have, there's a recent book called The Long Game by, by Rush Doshi, and he goes back into all the historical documents from the Chinese Communist Party up to the present, and he argues that China is, and this is a book published by Oxford University Press, he argues that China is out to take over the world. He wants, they want to become global hegemon. They first want to do it in Asia, but then they want to, want to become an Asian hegemon where they take Taiwan, maybe Japan, South Korea, Australia, but eventually they want to go global and take over the whole world. This is his argument. It, it, then it may very well be a legitimate argument, and it's a very dystopian future for anyone in the West who's used to our freedoms to imagine that. Broken Pottles coming back. It's the new year and time for a new you. You've thought about running for political office, but don't know where to start. Before you start any planning, you need to secure your name online with a yourname.vote web domain. This means your constituents will know they are learning about the real you when they surf the web. Secure your domain from GoDaddy.com today. Welcome back to Broken Potholes. I'm your host, Chuck Warren and Sam Stone. And today we have Dr. Anders Kaur. He is the president or the principal of Core Analytics and the publisher of the Journal of Political Risk. Um, we were talking about China the last segment. Does Taiwan trust the United States now to have their back if they get into a, a confrontation with China? I think they don't know. I don't. I mean, the, you know, there's there's a lot of issues. I mean, there's Afghanistan, like you mentioned. We didn't do very well there. Um, but in the Philippines, we have a defense treaty with the Philippines since 1951, and China has grabbed little teeny islands and sandbars and things. Uh, in the Philippine exclusive economic zone where it's supposed to be just Philippine fishing. 
um, and oil exploration. Well, China's grabbed little parts of that, and we never really did anything, even though we have a defense treaty. Uh, China is, you know, all, almost daily, China will send military flights into Japanese and Taiwan airspace. The U.S. doesn't really do enough to stop that. Um, and then if you look at all the way into Europe and Ukraine, uh, when Russia grabbed Crimea and the eastern part of Ukraine called Donbass, which has a lot of coal and uh, defense industry, actually, um, we didn't do anything, even though we had a, uh, an agreement with Ukraine that also Britain signed uh, and Russia signed that guaranteed Ukraine territorial integrity. We didn't do much at all. The, the best we've done, actually, was Trump gave them some uh, Javelin anti-tank missiles, shoulder-fired anti-tank missiles. But we just, and that's good, but it's just not enough, you know, because Russia still has that territory. So we don't look like a strong ally, unfortunately. We don't look like we're holding up to our international commitments. And the reality is that because the U.S. is the world's biggest, strongest, uh, most wealthy by GDP uh, standards, not counting purchasing power parity, but because we're the biggest and strongest country, uh, people look to us for leadership, and they look to us to guarantee the international system. Rightly or wrongly, they look to us for that. And right now, we're not providing that, and so we're going to lose allies. They're not going to, they're, they're going to, we're, we're going to lose allies from this, and they're going to try to take more of the responsibility on their own shoulders, which is in part good. The, uh, you know, I've long argued that countries like Taiwan, Japan, South Korea, and Australia, because of the rise of China, they need their own nuclear deterrent. They need their own uh, independent nuclear weapons um, that they can use in case they're attacked. And that, that's peace through strength. That way they don't get attacked in the first right. place. Because once Taiwan does get attacked, then the U.S. gets pulled into a war with China, we're in a very, very risky situation. If Taiwan had their own nuclear weapons right from the beginning, the war wouldn't start. Can America become isolationist, as some want? I mean, it is, does, is the world safer if America is an isolationist country? No. <laughs> Absolutely not. As soon as you become isolationist, China takes Taiwan, <laughs> and uh, Russia takes all of Ukraine— and then they use those territories against us. Why is that so hard for people to understand? I mean, I know we, I know, you know, there's these people we don't need to be the world's cop, but we're uniquely qualified to do it. So there is this the sense of freedom throughout the world. Well, I, I think incidents like Afghanistan, though, bolster that point of view with our incompetence. I mean, right. if we were doing these things competently, I think that point of view gets minimized pretty significantly. Doctor, your opinion? Yeah, I mean, it, well, it's always hard. I mean, it's never easy when you're, you know, when you're in a conflict a thousand miles away or more. You're, you're, it's a tough, it's a tough job. But I think the problem is that people don't understand that the world is constantly in flux. That the borders that we look, see on the maps are actually not really there very strongly, and so you've got. You know, you think that Afghanistan is a country and it's got some very defined borders. Well, in fact, you know, there's people moving across those borders all the time. There's terrorists moving across those borders. <laughs> people can move military equipment across those borders very easily from Pakistan. Pakistan's getting help from China. So everything is kind of connected and, and moving and in flux. And if you don't hold the lines that you have, and we do have certain lines, we should defend them. And as soon as you back off of that line and leave a power vacuum, it's filled in by the, the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, the North Koreans. You've got to keep positive pressure on all of those lines all the time, and you've got to force your allies to do the same thing. Otherwise, everything starts falling apart. Well, I think that's a great point to end on. Dr. Anders Kaur, thank you so much for being on the program today, uh, folks. Definitely, definitely check out the Journal of Political Risk. I think that's one I'm going to be adding to my reading list going forward. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate thank having you. Thank you very much. Well, 
We need to have him back on the show yes. with the Washington Times White House correspondent. I think that would be an interesting conversation to have. You know, the, when you talk international politics, most Americans, even those who are politically active, sort of turn a blind eye to it. It's just so important for how your life goes daily. They just don't seem to understand it. No, not at all. And we Not and, at all. And, Look, what's going on around the world right now, as he kind of alluded to at the end, we have a world in enormous flux. And if you're Australia, if you're South Korea, if you're the Philippines, if you're Thailand, you have to be nervous as a cat on a hot tin roof. That's a good analogy. I mean, especially especially (laughs) Australia and, frankly, Russia. Uh, You know, I mean, both of them have storehouses of, of natural resources within China's reach. And, and what the wokey liberals aren't getting is everything that's happening in the world and um, the despair, the confusion. You're going to have another type of Ronald Reagan here real soon. Americans by nature are just not going to watch this and say, yeah, we're going to become second rate. I think there's one thing, you and I have discussed this a lot. Um, I always use women's soccer as, as an example of it. Um, you know, They always talk about how women's soccer had these great ratings during the World Cup and Olympics, but on TV it's not. Americans like to win. And as a country, even as wokish as we are on some segments of society, they're not going to tolerate that. I mean, they probably have really sparked the fire people saying, hell no, we're not. This is not going to be the way we're going to act. You know, watching the early maneuvering for the 2024 presidential campaign and, you know, well, obviously we have to see what happens with Trump. But. With DeSantis, he has established such a strong base on domestic policy, on COVID, on all these things. But given his background, his military background, that's a guy I think has a real possibility of stepping up in that role. And he has shown the ability to really comprehend policy in depth, and that's what you need right now. I, I liked Trump's policies. I didn't like his ability to communicate them or lack of ability to communicate. You know, I was listening to him on Hannity last night, and he made some good points, but, you know, you just felt like his a guy sitting on the bar playing it, poker and it, talking it, on the side. It's word know. salad, and, and some of the words are really good, <laughs> yeah. right? But but at the end of the day, I'm a meat eater. Yeah. Uh, folks, if you're watching this on the TV, if you're seeing this, you can tell I'm a meat eater. <laughs> I don't need salad. Sam's not vegan. This is what we need no. to come out here today. Um Let's go to broken potholes. I think the world needs a little sunshine today. I think this would be important. So, um, you are my sunshine, we welcome the irrepressible my Kylie Kipper. Sunshine. Welcome back. Thank you for having you me back. Me You're welcome. Okay, this one's kind of cool. Um, so, a new study finds if you have someone to talk to, it could delay Alzheimer's. Um, researchers observed that simply having someone you can count on to listen to you when you need to talk is associated with greater cognitive resilience. Um, the study adds to growing evidence that people can take steps either for themselves or for the people that they love to slow down the development of Alzheimer's, which is so important considering we still don't have a cure for the disease. Um, the study also showed that although Alzheimer's affects people 65 or older, people 65 and younger will benefit from taking advantage of their social support. Um, for every unit of decline in the brain's volume, individuals between 40 and 50 with lower listener availability, um, had a cognitive age that was four years older than those that had someone to listen to them. Another um, sad result of loneliness. Yes. Yeah. And so many people right now being isolated because of the pandemic and the latest, you know, the the concern about Delta, uh, which next year will be concerned about Lambda and so forth and so on. I know from personal experience, you have a lot of family members, especially older ones, who are very isolated right now. You've experienced us personally. Uh, My family did not go crazy. They took COVID seriously, you know, so I still saw my parents during it um, once a month, but I didn't go hug them or kiss them. Right. I mean, I I kept six feet away, but they still had that, and we took walks and things of that nature. But a lot of people, I mean, you know, I remember going and I volunteered to help do the Pfizer. We talked about this one of our first episodes, and— Asking people, you know, you try to make a joke, we're going to go to Miami, you go to Hawaii, and they said, I'm going to go see my grandchild. When did you see him? Oh, a year ago. Mm-hmm. 
you know, people just simply forsook those connections, which I'm sorry, it doesn't build your immune system. No, no. You know, one of the things I think throughout the pandemic that's that's sort of created a, a, a bit of a dystopia for a lot of people is that the people making the decisions have the money to have full houses with backyards. They have space. They have sunshine. They have elbow room. They have elbow room. If you're a single person or a family living in a a one or two or three-bedroom apartment where you don't have even maybe a balcony or anything like that, and you're being locked in the way, for instance, they are in Australia right now, the damage that has to do to your psyche well, and I'm be enormous. And as everybody knows here in the studio, I'm a very optimistic person. I'm a very, I have a person of great deal of faith. I believe that in the long term things will be fine. But if you're a person who battles depression or has a bit of an Eeyore mentality, you look at what's going on in this country and world right now, and you're drinking a lot. And I and I don't like what's happening. I think we're causing some ramifications long term that we're going to be paying the price for five or ten years from now that's just unforeseen. Yeah, absolutely. I think what bothers me most is I think a lot of our response was built around uh, opposition to Donald Trump, and that response carried around the globe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this whole idea of zero COVID that you see these governments still pursuing. Well, Australia's gone insane. They've gone nuts. New Zealand, Australia, Canada have all lost their minds. I mean, COVID's here to stay. Yeah. I hate to break it to everybody. Uh, I'm not a a scientist, but most scientists, well, probably 99% of scientists would agree with me on this. It's not not going away. And so you've got to learn to do the things to be comfortable. If you feel comfortable and you've studied it yourself, get a vaccine. If not, Practice social distancing. Wash your hands. But you're going to have to live, gang. Yeah, um, absolutely. And if, if you don't, you're in for a very depressing life. And that's my real concern. I mean, watching what they're doing in schools again, you can't close these schools again. My son started college, my caboose, this week. <laughs> and his first day of school, I go, how was it? He goes, they got homework. You know, he'd been doing online school his senior year and, you know, second half his junior year. And, I mean, online school is a joke. Yeah, it's a- and so now it's just like, oh my gosh, there's this actual work schedule that I'm expected to perform. Well, and this is really terrible theater, political theater here, because the rest of the world is not doing this to their kids. They are not they are not doing this remote learning garbage. They're not putting all these restrictions on kids. Kids are attending school normally in most of the world. Do the rest of the world have teachers unions like we do? They have no. such a big prominent force in the education of our children? No, clearly not. I mean, you know, I think plenty of them have teachers unions, but they're smart enough to understand that they're not going to be allowed to harm the kids to, to benefit their members. Well, you know, I'm going to put a bullseye on the station here, but I think teachers unions are one of the most destructive forces our country has right now. Uh, absolutely. I, I think you can go back and look what's happening and the finger lays at those folks. And, and again, they do what unions are supposed to do. They look out purely for their membership, dues-paying membership. Thinking they really care about the kids above the teacher's interests is ridiculous. No, they don't. They have made it entirely clear. Teachers unions have been entirely clear, especially in the last year and a half, their interest is 100% behind their members and has nothing to do with your children, folks. Broken Potholes, coming back for one more episode offline. If you're tuning in or online, if you're tuning in on the podcast, we have one more episode for you. Otherwise, we're back next week. It's the new year and time for the new you. You've thought about running for political office, but don't know where to start. Before you start any planning, you need to secure your name online with a yourname.vote web domain. This means your constituents will know they are learning about the real you when they surf the web. Secure your domain from godaddy.com today. Welcome back to Broken Potholes. If you're listening to this, it means you're listening to the podcast. And please like, download, share. Let's get that out there because, frankly, Chuck, I don't think there are a lot of people having conversations like we had with our guests today or like we've had in recent weeks in the podcast world and in the journalist world. There are not enough of these good conversations going on. No, it's not. And, you know, as again, we discussed, I know a lot of people don't like to pay attention to this, but it's just it's really important because it affects your daily life. 
Yeah, absolutely. If, if people don't think that China will have an effect on their life for the rest of their life, they're delusional. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> let's 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 talk baseball for a minute, Sam. You were texting me yes. this morning and and um, about. Um, about the latest curse of the Diamondback? Yeah, I mean, if you're going to get cursed in the Diamondbacks, just know you're probably going to the playoffs. Right. Or probably going to get a record contract, or you're going to go to the All-Stars. Yeah, no, look, the best <laughs> thing that can happen to your career is to have the Diamondbacks trade you away. It is entirely clear at this point. Robbie Ray, I was just reading this morning, and I hadn't been following because, you know, it's the Toronto Blue Jays. Yeah, and... I mean, I mean, Canada baseball, who cares? Yeah, plus they've been playing in Buffalo. Yeah, <laughs> nobody nobody pays attention to that. No. All right, but but Robbie Ray is a contender for the AL Cy Young Award. One of the top two or three guys. Well, and, he, and so apparently he found his mojo that we were always expecting after his first year here, and could not yeah. quite reach realization. And I, it's funny, you just wonder what's going on with the D back organization. Even when people come up through our minors, they do well. So obviously we have a good farm program. We have pretty good scouts. So what happens in between? In between is astounding because, I mean, at the end of the day, they they have traded away more all-star appearances, more, I mean. I mean, how do you feel being the owner of the Diamondbacks and seeing that? I, I mean, I mean, personally, you have to say, I'm happy for him, but good grief, again? Oh, it, that's, look, if there's an organization right now that has traded away more all-stars, more top talent, I don't know who it is. I don't think it's possible. No. I don't think, I mean, they may be top 10 all time. And, and they're not getting great return for these guys when they're letting them go. I mean. No, I, I think part of it, too, is they get such, you know, they're not a small market team. They're not a large market team. They're mid-market. So mid-market teams always have this debate. Do we go for it now? Or we got a contract coming up. We're not sure we want to pay top dollar. So let's get. And, and what always happens is they got a year left. Like, well, I don't want to pay this guy fifteen million a year, and it's just always biting them. It always does. And they need a really. They have never had, at least in my experience, they've never had an organizational strategy. No. That you know they're following from year to year. I'm recommending Kylie Kipper, president, Diamondbacks. She'll bring the I'm sunshine. I'm kind of down. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. I want to go back to our guest today, which was which was very good. Um, folks, if the America doesn't play a role, the world really sinks into chaos. Anybody telling you otherwise is just lying or stupid. I can't figure out which one yet. And it's, it goes the same thing. with. Look, I think right now what you're saying is when America draws back, uh, you know, to use it domestically, it's like, oh, let's defund our police. What could go wrong? Right. Right. <laughs> well, I, I do think there's room for a more focused. Approach. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I mean, do we need bases all over Europe? No, they should be defend. They should be poning up. I, the, I, the I funds. think I think it's I think it's worth the debate. But, um, you know, leadership stinks. It carries grave responsibilities. And, for example, I would love us not to have bases in South Korea Japan, because, you know, it's their national security. But I'm not sure they fill the void. And at the end of the day, protecting those allies or just having our young men and women there prevents chaos. And, and, you know, and the world is very interconnected now. Well, and and if you you were listening to what Dr. Kaur said, talking about their plans for world domination, for world hegemony, I mean, you know, they are a really imperialist nation and they feel like they missed out on the imperial period when the U.S. and Britain and others were coming up, they're ready to go get theirs. Well, you know, the are, one thing, are we ready to stop them? No, we're not right now. And I think that's why I do believe that you're going to see a rise of a foreign policy akin to what Ronald Reagan had. Strength through peace. I think you're going to see here in the next presidential election or two, someone's going to say, we need a 500-ship Navy. We need X millions of people in our armed forces. And the world, you're just going to either jump on board and live in peaceful coexistence or buckle up. You know, I, I always go back to the debate, and you would remember this, too, as I was growing up around Star Wars. Right. You know, the, the satellite defense system against nuclear missiles. Here's the thing. There's really good evidence out there that we built it. Not right. in the laser design that they originally came up with, but with a concept called Brilliant Pebbles from Lawrence Livermore Labs, uh, which basically uses a mag rail gun uh, on a satellite to do this. I think we're a lot better off to have that. 
all these programs right now, people need to to think very carefully. If you're going to oppose these type of programs, you need to think very carefully what that means in the future. Well, it takes long-term thinking, which most people can't do. So, for example, he made the point about AI in China. Yeah. And I look, you and I, you you and our capitalists, we're free markets, but there are certain things the government's got to give the jump start on funding for it to get done, and then let the private sector take off from there. And if you don't have it, it's not going to get done because our markets are very based on our ROI. And you know, based on we have markets and quarterly reports, we're very short-term thinking. Yep. So there are certain things that the U.S. government and the taxpayer need to invest in. So, for example, COVID has shown us um, the disparity and the weakness of our supply chain. Mm-hmm. We should not be having Tylenol and aspirin and penicillin made in China. No. I mean, it's just it's stupid. Oh, it's it is reckless, and, you know, and because we are doing same day, you know, production and you know staffing and things of that nature, we have to go back and think: what are the things you really need? And again, I don't view this as an isolationist view. I view this as a common sense policy. No, and I think you're right that when that figure arises, that foreign policy hawk figure, this needs to be part of that agenda. Is, we, we, you and I have polled it here in yeah. Phoenix, and people support uh, sort of America first enterprise zones. Yeah, just go figure out everything you need in a crisis. Food, you know, energy self-sufficiency, which Biden has absolutely destroyed. Oh, unbelievable. I mean, this is how bad Biden is. You're getting back to record inflation after three decades. <laughs> we were energy independent a year ago. And no one knows about it because we're stuck watching this cluster in Afghanistan, which he has endangered all these lives, caused the death of lives because the man's not competent. Well, you know, going back to to something we were talking about early in the program, if you're an international leader, the, the contrast you have is an American jet running away from Kabul with people falling off of it. Versus the Chinese premier standing in the middle of an eight-lane highway cutting a ribbon. And which of those looks more attractive to you? Yeah, no kidding. I mean, it's just unbelievable what we are doing to this country and to our position in the world right now. Well, folks, thank you for visiting us this afternoon on Broken Potholes. Um, We'll be back next week with a great guest, which you've already lined up, have we not, Kylie Kipper? Yes, I have. His name is Eric. I don't want to butcher his last name. Eric Eric Hoffman. Yep. Okay. Easy last name. We were, we were going to go with just what Eric No Name. What does Eric Hoffman do? Yeah. Stop asking hard questions. You're the executive producer. What does Eric Hoffman do? I know, but I did a great thing where I started lining up all these amazing guests. Listen, we so just, I don't, we just don't. demoted her from president of the Diamondbacks to deputy assistant to the general manager. She's the George Costanza deputy travel, travel yeah. secretary for the Arizona Diamondbacks. Yeah. Folks, this is Broken Potholes. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back back with you next week. The 2020 political field was intense, so don't get left behind in 2021. If you're running for political office, the first thing on your to-do list needs to be securing your name on the web with a yourname.vote web domain from godaddy.com. Get yours now.